But if you have your Bibles with you, you might want to turn to Romans chapter 9. But for now... When you encounter a religious system that has a long history, even a religious system that begins with, with a solid basis on the truth, it's commonplace for tradition and uh, rigidity to become the norm, even in the support of error. Traditions often become elevated to the point of divine, sort of unquestioned truth to be defended at all costs. And what was once just somebody's opinion or a preference over time hardens into a, an eternal surety never to be questioned. And reform and reevaluation become nearly impossible when that happens. And that's, of course, exactly the experience of the great men that led the Protestant Reformation. They, did, they began with no thought. It never even occurred to them that they were going to split the church in Europe and, and cause all this havoc, uh, never even entered their minds to do that. They began with just the idea, Luther began with the idea of correcting abuses that he saw in the church and clarifying some doctrinal issues that he thought needed to be clarified from a biblical foundation. And then he found himself vilified and condemned and eventually excommunicated because his ideas seemed new and radical to a church built on human tradition. And in reality, his ideas were just biblical. And they were radical because they were returning to the New Testament. He was, it's hard to imagine how little the New Testament was read in the uh, 16th century. But Luther was a, a, in fact, he was assigned as a monk to study the Bible and become a, he was a very bright man, to become a professor teaching the Bible because the leader of his mon monastic order believed it was the only hope he had for his own spiritual difficulties was to get into the Bible. It was, but it was very unusual for people to, people to get into the Bible. For one thing, there were very few around, and that just wasn't what people did. They weren't interested in that. They were interested in speculation and theological ideas and... Um, other forms of uh, spirituality that just were not biblically based. So when Luther was exposed to the scripture in depth, it affected him profoundly, of course, and when he tried to bring those ideas to the surface to, to talk about them, it caused a lot of havoc. Well, there's nothing new about that kind of thing. Uh, Luther was willing to be corrected, but he said only by scripture or reason not tradition. And every time they had a debate and big issues came up, he'd say, no, you're giving me traditions. Let's talk scripture or reason. And uh, they, would, they would always say, you know, a tradition back in him. Well, this is what the church has taught since whatever. He says, that's not interesting to me. Uh, that's not the point. John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostles, in their turns, all had the exact same experience with first century Judaism. Jesus was not what tradition had expected, nor would he support the prevailing religious system. Not in the ways that it had deviated from scripture. Actually, he supported it quite a bit, um, but when it went against scripture, he felt totally free to reject it and to speak the truth. Well, rabbinical learning in the first century and now was far more concerned with the opinions of rabbis than with the words of God through the prophets in scripture. That was not where they spent their intellectual time or their thinking. Indeed, Jesus was such a popular teacher because he was so unlike all the other rabbis that were traveling around in Palestine or were well known in those days. Ask a rabbi a question and he would give you a series of rabbis' opinions. Other rabbis, well, you ask him a theological question, he said, well, rabbi so-and-so said that about that and rabbi so-and-so said that about that and, and rabbi so-and-so said that about that. All those kinds of discussions. 
The Sermon on the Mount is quite different. It's loaded with authoritative truth, easily apprehended and things that are applicable every day. And in fact, Matthew tells us that when the Sermon on the Mount was done, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. It's because when you ask Jesus the theological question, he would just tell you the answer. He'd never quote a rabbi. He might quote the scripture, God's word, but he'd never quote a rabbi. Because that, that's just an opinion. So this authority, which was his by virtue of his divine nature, of course, and his role as the Messiah, prophet, priest, and king to his people, earned him the hatred of the powers that guarded the tradition. And he was killed, just like so many other reformers were killed many, many years later. His resurrection decided who was telling the truth, of course, in all of that disagreement. But still, although many of the Jews believed in him, most did not. And as a whole, on the whole, they did not believe him or accept him as the Messiah. So remarkably, um, their unbelief and rejection actually became, over the course of a few years, an argument against him. God made promises to Israel of national blessing through the Messiah. So how could Jesus be the Messiah if these blessings hadn't come? That's a really good argument. And that's really what Paul is dealing with in the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11. Why didn't the Jews believe and receive what was promised? Is God true to his word or isn't he? See, the whole thing is to cast doubt on the trustworthiness of God. And there are issues regarding that, that Paul deals with systematically in these three chapters we've been starting to look at, 9 through 11. And Paul, who was once a rabbi himself, of course, and now he's an apostle of Christ, is explaining just what has happened and why God's promises are thoroughly trustworthy and have not failed at all. But to do so, he has to overthrow these certain traditional ideas, not biblical ideas, human ideas, traditions of men. One idea he must address is what it means to say that the Jews are the chosen people. Now, the Bible says they are the chosen people. The common idea of the day was that being Jewish guaranteed your place in heaven by birth. If you're a child of Abraham, you're a child of God, period. That's it. Another idea was that one merited God's favor by keeping the law and heaven was earned by good works. The first one of those things is what we've really been dealing with lately. He's going to move, as we move into chapter 10, he's going to start dealing with the second one, the works issue, at the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10. But what he's been dealing with so far is this birth question, also a little bit the merit issue too. And Paul attacks these ideas systematically and in order. Salvation is not determined by birth, he says, but by God's sovereign choice. Chapter 9, verse 16. Well, let's start at verse 6 and work our way to verse 16. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no unrighteousness with God is there 
may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It is not human willing or human doing that is decisive, but divine mercy freely disposed according to God's will. That is the clear teaching of the New Testament and follows exactly the doctrine of Christ himself. Human nature is so corrupted, the Bible says, that if salvation were left up to men, no one would be saved. No one would choose Christ. No one would love God or delight in him and his ways. No one. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, which we read earlier in the service this morning, we were by nature children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, of course, somebody always objects to this. Romans 9:19. Why will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? He finds fault because men are at fault. That's why he does it. He simply directs the course of history and lives for his own glory. Verse 22 says, some, to serve, some serve to, quote, demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, while others, verse 23, are vessels of mercy to make known the riches of his glory, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And who are those people? Verse 24 says, us, the called. Then he says, both Jews and Gentiles. I think at this point, the first century Jew, who has been steeped in tradition, believing that salvation comes by birth, would accuse Paul of making this up, of being an innovator, of throwing out ideas that are new and radical and without basis, which is exactly what the medieval church said to Martin Luther. This is new stuff. You're just, you're changing everything. And just as Luther did many centuries later, Paul reaches back to the only source of truth, which is the word of God. That's what he's doing. It's not new. And Luther's job was to persuade through the scriptures that this was not new. This was, in fact, God's inspired word, his doctrine. And that's exactly what Paul does. He's been doing that all along in his argument, proving from the Jewish Bible the errors of contemporary, for him, Jewish ideas and traditions. So in other words, he keeps reaching back to the Old Testament to refute current notions. And in chapter 9, verse 25 through 29, which is our text for today, we've been, now if you're new around here, we've gone through all this other stuff in a lot of detail, so we didn't just throw that at you. We've been teaching through that. There's tapes available. But, um, but for this morning, we're starting at verse 25, and he just rapid fires a series of Old Testament texts to seal the case that he's already made. He does it so well that if you accept the authority of the Old Testament, you really have to submit to Paul's doctrine, if you're honest, because it's so... Obviously so, what he's saying. It's right of the Old Testament. So first Paul turns to the prophet Hosea. Now Hosea was in 8th century B.C., so he lived over 700 years before Paul, um, guy in the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember Israel was split after Solomon's time into two kingdoms. Israel was in the north and Judah was in the south. And um, while Isaiah was prophesying to the southern kingdom, Hosea was prophesying to the northern kingdom about the same time. And uh, he was a contemporary of Isaiah. And it was a time of spiritual and political decline. Um, idolatry was openly practiced, and wickedness of every kind prevailed among the Jewish people. And the prophecy of Hosea keeps shifting back and forth. If you've ever read that book, between utter condemnation and these promises of wonderful love and restoration and, and glory for Israel's future, but an utter blasting and condemnation for the current generation. God told Hosea to go and marry a woman who had proved to be a 
wanton, a prostitute, a woman who would break her marriage vows repeatedly and consistently and go off and play the harlot. And they were to have children, and the reason he told Hosea to do this was so that Hosea would have an experiential understanding of what God was going through. Because as the Israelites were committing idolatry, they were committing spiritual adultery. And Hosea's life as a prophet was to be an actual exemplar, a public, visible example of what the Israelites were doing to God. What a, what a ministry. Can't imagine that. And he has children, and God tells him to name his children according to the nature of the events going on in the time in which they lived. So he has a son, and he, God says to name your son Jezreel. Jezreel means God will scatter. It's a prophecy of doom. What's your boy's name? Jezreel. Why are you calling him God will scatter? That's what's going to happen. Then he has a daughter, Lo-Ruhamah, which means not pitied. Why is your name a little girl not pitied? Because God isn't going to pity this generation. He has another son, Lo-Ami. Lo means not. Not my people. Not my people. God will scatter. Not pitied. Not my people. Pretty heavy. Why? Well, Hosea 1.9 says, For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. That's pretty heavy. The northern kingdom was swept out of existence right after that by the Assyrians, and incredibly barbaric and cruel as the Assyrians were. Just wiped out that whole, just massacred people by the hundreds of thousands and took them all into captivity in 722 B.C. That generation, though descendants of Abraham, were not children of God. So how can anybody make a theological argument that all descendants of Abraham are, are children of God by birth when God said to a whole generation of descendants of Abraham, God will scatter, not pitied, not my people. I will not be your God because you're not my people because I, I will not be your God. That's what he said to them. That is a clincher verse. So that generation, the descendants of Abraham, were not saved, not blessed, not going to heaven, and God was not even their God. But a future generation, by God's choice and mercy, would be restored to him. So in Romans 9.25, Paul quotes Hosea 2.23. He also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. I will call those. It's God's doing, right? He's the actor. There is the freeness of God right there in calling. And the whole text itself is a marvelous reminder that even when God strikes hard and Israel is destroyed and scattered, there is a future. And that will be Paul's theme in chapter 11 of Romans, the future of Israel, which is glorious. You are not my people. You will be my people. Justice mercy the second quote Paul uses in Romans is from Hosea 1.10 also from Hosea Romans 9.26 which is an earlier section also describing God's promised future blessings for Israel it shall be in that place where it was said to them you are not my people there they shall be called the sons of the living God the same place where it was said you are not my people 
there they will be called the sons of the living God. So here you clearly see the language of salvation. Not my people, low on me, but in the future, sons of the living God. During Israel's history, there are times of mercy and restoration and times of justice and scattering. And it is foolishness, and, and really it's nonsense to say that Jesus can't be the Messiah because the majority of Israel doesn't recognize him as such, which was the argument being proffered here. Their hope had been, in, in other generations, they had just denied it altogether. They were supposed to be hoping in Messiah and living for him and expecting him, and they weren't at all. They were idolaters, and they were judged for that. So there have been these other generations which have been almost completely on the wrong side against faith and loyalty to God and what he was doing. The Exodus generation had to do what? Wander for 40 years until they all died out. Only two people that passed through the, the Red Sea, if that's what it was, the Red Sea, whichever sea that was, and crossed over the land and God saved and did his mother. Only two of those people actually made it into the Promised Land out of all those millions of people. They died out before the land was given to Joshua. And the captivity came in Hosea's day precisely because so many of Abraham's descendants were lo-ami, not my people. So Jesus pronounced the generation that he came to as a wicked and perverse generation, did he not? Does that mean that God's promises to Israel have failed? No. Paul's just saying that's typical. So if 99% if of the Jews rejected God in Hosea's day, why is it strange that they would reject in Christ's day? He's saying that's not, a, that's not an argument against Christ being the Messiah. So then in Romans 9.27, Paul turns to Hosea's fellow prophet, southern kingdom now, Isaiah, prophesying at the same time, but in the southern kingdom of Judah. So look at uh, 9.27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the, this is a very important word, remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. What does God's word say? What do the Jewish scriptures teach? Isn't it Paul's point in 9.6? They are not all Israel who are Israel. The number of physical descendants, Isaiah says, may be very great as the sand of the sea, but those who are saved are a remnant. Remember that word remnant. It is a very important Old Testament concept that is carried into the New Testament. It is a common Old Testament expression, a very helpful one in explaining the Jewish question as it existed in Paul's day and in our day. What is a remnant? A remnant is a small surviving group. It's a tiny amount of the original whole, right? If you have a remnant of your carpet in your garage or somewhere like that, it's a little piece that they left out of the, what was done over, right? The remnant. If you go to a remnant place, you're looking for leftover fabrics or something, right? It's a little piece of the whole. And if you trace the word remnant through the Old Testament, you will see that it is a concept that appears with some frequency. We'll do that when we get to chapter 11. And in some uh, very significant passages, it, especially passages related to the millennial age of the, of the glory of the Messiah, that word remnant shows up quite frequently in those passages. But what is clear is that true believers among the descendants of Abraham have often been a very small number. And it should be no surprise that this would be the case at any other time. That's what Paul is saying. In fact, if you kind of stick something in here, your bulletin here or something, in, and go back to 1 Kings in the Old Testament, chapter 19. It's a classic example of this. 
It's the story of Elijah, the fearless prophet. The fearless prophet who became afraid. Ever feel alone in your convictions? Well, Elijah did. It's so much easier to be fearless with brothers around, right? Somebody that agrees with you. In 1 Kings chapter 18, that's the famous contest between Elijah and the 400 prophets of Baal. And I don't want to get into the details of that, but remember they had this big contest in, uh, to see who was the, whose God was the real God. And Elijah won the contest, and the Israelites, under his direction, slew the prophets of Baal. They killed them, 400 men. And uh, it turns out that the queen of Israel really liked those men that got slain. So she was a little put off when she found out about it. In fact, she's the reason that you don't name your child Jezebel. Anybody name their, their daughter Jezebel or even think about it? No, probably not. Jezebel has this uh, connotation, and that's why, because Queen Jezebel was not a, not a good girl. Um, but she was a devotee of Baal, the horrible pagan god. And she supported those now-dead prophets. So she sends Elijah a note in um, chapter 19, verse 2. So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, my prophets, by tomorrow about this time. In other words, may the gods destroy me if I don't murder you by tomorrow at this time. <laughs> Isn't that a nice message to get from the queen? It'd be cool if like a little message came from the president, had the president's signature in the corner and all this stuff, and he opened it up and it says, you're dead tomorrow by this time, or else I'm doomed. <laughs> He's uh, drawing a line. So Elijah, you're dead meat. Verse 3, and it says, He was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life. It's amazing, because he was so bold. But you know, when it's the queen and you're dead, that's, that's different, I guess. It just, uh, he just... Anyway, he runs. He ends up at Mount Horeb, the very place where God gave the Ten Commandments. And God asks him what he's doing there. And in, and in verse 10, he says a very important thing. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel, have forsaken my covenant, torn down mine altars, and killed thy prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I'm the only one left. And he asks God to put him out of his misery. And then in verse 14, he repeats this. He says he's had enough. But God isn't finished with him. He tells him what to do next. He gives him some instructions, and then he tells them something in verse 18. God says in verse 18, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What does that mean? You're not alone. There's, there's 7,000 people, I've counted, that have not bowed the knee to Baal. He says, I have 7,000 people. Now, out of millions of people, 7,000 is a very tiny group, but it's not one. There are more. It's a remnant. And out of seven, some millions of people, 7,000 that are true to God, that's a remnant. And God knows exactly who they are. He knows exactly who believes and who doesn't and how many he has and how many he doesn't. And it's that little tiny group out of all the millions of people. So let's go back to Romans. In Elijah's day, there were 7,000 faithful Israelites out of all the sons of Abraham. Should it really be a surprise that a majority reject Jesus as they rejected Elijah and his ministry? The idea of the remnant is really important for Paul's case, and it makes a lot of sense. God did not forsake Israel when only 7,000 were genuine in Elijah's time, and there are more Jews than that in the church. That's what Paul's saying. 
On the day of Pentecost, when Peter, P- Peter got up and preached his great sermon, just 40 days after the resurrection of Christ, 3,000 Jews accepted Jesus as their Messiah and came into the church. Acts chapter 2. It says, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. After that. So after the 3,000, every day after that, more and more Jews were becoming followers of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says that 5,000 Jews came to faith in Christ through the apostles' preaching. So the church began as a Jewish concern already with more people than were believers in the true God in Hosea's day. Made up of thousands of Jews, the church then. All of the apostles were Jewish. We are studying theology this morning that is written by a Jew, right? And this morning, all over the world, hundreds of millions of people all over the world are hearing words read that were written by Jews, and these are God's words through them, and God's promises to Abraham haven't failed. In Genesis 22:18, 4,000 years ago, God said to Abraham, In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's what's happened. And it's still happening. And in the church, Jews have always been an important part. They've always been present. They've always had a place. When I was in seminary, there were about a hundred of us guys. And five or six of them, five or six percent of the congregate, of the seminarians studying for the ministry to be pastors in Christian churches were Jewish. They were the descendants of Abraham. In this congregation, we have a number of people who are physical descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And in church history, there have always been Jews in the church. And that's what Paul's point is. There is the remnant preserved in the church. Felix Mendelssohn, the great composer, if you've ever heard the Reformation Symphony, it's just beautiful. He takes Martin Luther's hymn and he just turns it into this powerful symphony. It's a beautiful thing. Mendelssohn's grandfather was Moses Mendelssohn. He was one of the greatest Jewish philosophers of, the, of the, that era, the 1700s. And his father... Mendelssohn's father was obviously the son of Moses Mendelssohn, became a devout Lutheran, a convert to Christ, and Mendelssohn, Felix Mendelssohn, became a devout Christian as well. Alfred Edersheim, if you ever study the Gospels and want to do, uh, when I preach through the Gospels, I go to the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. That's one of my main sources of information, written by a Jew. Uh, Alfred Edersheim, who became a Christian, he was a rabbinical uh, student that became a Christian. Excellent scholar. God's always kept a remnant and he keeps it in the church today. That's Paul's point about himself in Romans chapter 11. Look at chapter 11 real quick. Verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people as he may it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed thy prophets, they have torn down thine altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Then verse 5. Look at that. In the same way, then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. He caps his point with divine election. We have one more quote from Paul, which again emphasizes the need for sovereign mercy. It's in another quote from Isaiah, found in Romans 9, 29. And he's quoting Isaiah uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. 
Isaiah, uh, Romans 9.29, just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left, us to a, a, had left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom, we would have resembled Gomorrah. If God had not left it to us a seed, a remnant, a small group of believers who survived, if God had not done that, we would have become as Sodom, we would have become as Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Total and complete annihilation. No posterity, no survivors, no memory. That's what would have happened had God left the Jews to themselves and us as well. Only his electing mercy saved them, saved anyone. And when I read this, my mind goes right away to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. In fact, Jesus' condemnation of the Galilean cities immediately precedes his teaching on election. Matthew 11:20, he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And then Jesus says, he reproaches them because they did not repent, right? He says, if Capernaum, this bustling, non-idolatrous, first-century Jewish city, if Sodom had seen what had been done in Capernaum, they would have repented. What a chastisement. Unbelieving generation. And in contemplating this, Jesus expresses God's role in saving some. Verse 25 of Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord in heaven of earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it is well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So God the Father reveals, the Son reveals, the will of God is determinative in those from whom the truth is hidden and those to whom the truth is revealed. This does not deny or take away from man's need to choose or man's responsibility, but God's purpose and will are the ultimate cause of anyone being saved. And then Jesus invites us to come. Verse 28 of Matthew 11, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Come to Jesus and you'll find rest. And he's the only way to find rest for your troubled soul, because only he solved the sin problem. Some come, most do not. But if you come, God is drawing you to himself. And the message of Romans is glorify him in his saving mercy because you didn't deserve it, but he gave it to you freely. Okay. Anybody have a question about election? We're going to take some time now and just take some questions and answers on election. If there's that little white sheet in your bulletin, might get you a jumping off point or two. There's a list of scriptures on one side, some good books on election recommended, gives you some names of some people that go both ways. 
Arminians who believe that man's decision is ultimate in salvation, God's decision is ultimate in salvation, or Calvinists. And on the other side is the Westminster Confession of Faith's article on election, which is very well written. And um, that might spur some thinking as well. So raise a hand if you want to get started. Now, come on, a lot of people threatened me with questions last week. Michael, me boy. <laughs> About a month ago or so, you were covering a section on how our wills did feed into this whole process. And I was wondering if you can kind of recap that and highlight some of those points again. Yeah, you have a will. If, if The idea of God's choosing, God being the ultimate determiner of salvation, does not say that you don't have a will. It, it, there's nothing about election that says people are robots. I, I, you hear that, and that's just, that's not what the doctrine teaches. In fact, if you look at this um, uh, Westminster Confession thing, in the very first article it says, God from all eternity did by his most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. He means you have a real will, and you get to choose with your will. The doctrine is that your will is... You are a, a sinner by nature. That is what Ephesians chapter 2 said. We read that earlier. By nature we are children of wrath. So your will is always used without God's grace against him. You, if you picture, picture it directionally, towards God, away from God. Every human being that's born on the earth because they're children of Adam and Eve go in this direction. That's what they're doing with their will. They have a will, and in, ter in terms of spiritual things, they're going away from God. They have a will to, to um, choose to be lawyers or doctors and all those kind of things. You have a will to go to this school and not that school. You have a will to go to Alpha Beta or a will to go to Ralph's. You have all kinds of will. But in terms of spiritual things, your will is moving you away from God. That's what you're doing. What God does in, in election is sovereignly bestows upon some people what we call regeneration or the new birth and he changes the direction that you're going. So now you're going this way, towards God. And that's what salvation is. And he's granted you eternal life, and your will is now awakened from the dead. You're not dead in your trespasses and sins. He made you alive in Christ, Ephesians 2.4 says. And now your will is used for him. You're choosing him. Your will is still engaged. You have a will, and now you're choosing to follow. But you could not have done that without his grace. And it's his grace that made that a reality in your heart and in your life. Does that help? So you, your will is real, but you would always will against him unless he sovereignly granted you by grace a change of direction and an awakening that now has enlivened your will to choose him and love him and follow him. And he only grants that to certain people. And everybody else, he doesn't predestine them to doom. They're already going that way. They're already going that way. He just lets them go. Like Pharaoh, we talked about last week. Okay. Does everyone who he grants the grace to continue to to go his direction, or do some still choose the other direction? Yeah, that's a big question, and and in, uh, the 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 theological term is is grace irresistible. And I believe it is, based on all the things we've read. That grace is irresistible. When God makes you alive, you're alive. And you're not dead. See, once you're, when you're 
sovereignly chosen by God and you are made alive, now you have a real free will. Your other will is not free in the sense that it's in bondage to wickedness because your nature is wicked. But when God changes your nature and draws you in his direction, now you've got a will to be more free than you did before because now you can choose to be a, a, a crummy Christian or, or a good Christian, right? You can choose to be a weak and, and vacillating and cowardly or you can choose to be bold and, and, and a true disciple and faithful. And, and But... The new birth is the new birth. It's simply there. It's, the key to the whole doctrine is the doctrine of regeneration or the new birth. If you have it, you have it. If you don't, you don't. You know what I'm saying? So if you've got the new birth, that, that is your possession. That's eternal life right there. If you don't have the new birth, you have no interest in God really anyway. Okay, I have, I have another question which is huge and it would be phrased in the form of a paragraph. So I'm going to let other people ask small questions first. Okay. Because mine might take like forever just to ask. Okay, Karen? Um, where, does where does what fit in? Prayer. Okay. Prayer. Good, good question. If you look at number six on the Westminster thing, it says, as God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called into faith in Christ, by his spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, kept by his power through faith unto salvation. That answers your first question, Amy. Neither are there any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. The point is that, that he foreordains the means as well as the ends. And that's really a, a critical a aspect of this. And we, when we get to Romans chapter 10, you know, Paul's going to say, how can people believe without a hearer? How, how can people believe unless they hear the gospel, unless it's preached to them? Right. God foreordains the means as well as the end. So our prayers are part of the means of people being saved. So when you're praying and begging for God to save somebody, that's part of the means of their being saved, that he's already foreordained. And you're participating in that. And truly you are. And so it's the right thing to do. In fact, the fact that you're praying for someone to be saved is proof that you believe in the doctrine of election because you believe that God's the one that's going to save them. Right? I mean, that's what you're asking him to do. You're asking him to change their heart and, and bring new life to them and save them. So you're actually acknowledging his sovereignty and salvation even in praying for that. And, and that's... So he's ordaining the means. But that's true about prayer, I think, generally. Prayer isn't for us to persuade God about what needs to be done down here. Do you think he doesn't understand that or doesn't know or is less wise than we are? I mean, what, do you, what are we actually praying for when we pray, you know? We're, we're participating in what he's doing. And when we pray, we're involved in what God is doing so that he gets glory and thanksgiving. And, and, but we're not, we're not going to change the world because our opinion about what needs to happen is going to be what's happening. But God does answer prayer, but he foreordains answering those prayers to bless you and let you know how real he is. Because he's infinite. Infinitely wise, infinitely everywhere, infinitely in all times and all that. So it's, nothing's new to him. We're not surprising him. And we're not bringing things to his attention that he doesn't know about. Or isn't already working on. We're being, he's drawing us into it through prayer. We're being involved with it through prayer. My first two questions were answered, but uh, this question of election and the irresistible, whatever you said. Irresistible grace. Grace. 
Hebrews 6, 4 says, for those that have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have and then, verse 6, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Right. Can you clarify that one? Yeah. Um, they are not genuine. And they are tasting the heavenly gift. They're participating in the whole life of the Christian community. And I can give you a whole list of names. In fact, I write names in the back of my Bible sometimes of people that I know that have been in this condition. They know our lingo. They speak our language. They um, make a profession. They do all the things. They participate in the Christian community. And, and then they're gone. And then they tell you that they don't believe anymore, or whatever, or they hate God, or whatever the thing might be. That, and they've denied what they've participated in. They were not, they did not have the new birth. They are people that were participating in the life of the church without the new birth. And look, Christianity is attractive to a lot of people. So for whatever psychological need it might meet, people might hang around Christianity and never get it. Never really get it, and, and never know why everybody's got certain feelings or, or um, Godward directions in their heart, but they're part of it, and they're, they've, they've actually experienced the blessing of it. And as they follow the Bible in certain ways, they experience benefits from that because it has natural benefits as well as spiritual ones. But they aren't genuine, and I think that's what he's talking about there. It's like it says in 1 John 4, 4, I think it says that they went out from us because they were not of us. And uh, I think that's exactly what he's talking about there. And you know, it's interesting because in Hebrews, he even says to them, he says, um, uh, he says he's convinced about better things concerning them. In other words, he's saying, this is not true of you, because he knows that they're genuine. And that, I think that kind of solves that. Don? Did you? helps because God has told us that prayer helps. Just as preaching the gospel to someone helps. That is the means. And he's not only ordained the end, he has ordained the means to that end. So by being obedient to God when he commands us to preach the gospel and to pray and to do all of those things, which he wants us to do, he is including us in his great work. And that is a, a great privilege and a blessing for us to be involved in that. It benefits us, it benefits those we're praying for, and it glorifies God. And that's why he does that. That's how it connects in. He's not surprised by our prayers, though. Okay, my question, I guess, would be, it seems like the Bible teaches two truths. And one is that God has foreordained, although... Um, you know, there's stuff that you've been going over. But there are other passages that talk about our need to repent or to believe. 
and they seem to be apparently contradictory. Why? Well, that one, we have a will, and in the other way, that God, when he chooses some, by definition, he excludes some. There is nothing in the passages that invite us to believe, like come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, that talk about, those passages are not dealing with the subject of what is the ultimate cause of our believing is. They are saying that we have a responsibility to believe. We do. We have a real will. We are creatures made in God's image. We are meaningful beings who despise God and move away from him at every chance we can get. He commands us to believe, to repent, to come to him. Those passages that command us to do that are not saying if it happens, why it's happening or the cause of it happening. They're not dealing with that. The passages that are dealing with that tell us that it is God ultimately who is doing that work in the heart. So they're not contradictory. When Jesus says, um, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, that immediately follows him saying it's the ones the Son wills to reveal that are going to be there that are going to believe those things are in total harmony together it's just like when in Sunday school this morning I think uh, Bill was reading from Acts chapter 2 where it says God foreordained what passage is that 223 was one of them having been delivered Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God and he says and you have taken and with wicked hands put him to death God foreordained all of it you did it you were wicked in doing it but it was ordained by God that it happened. They have total responsibility for that. So their wills were actively engaged in doing an evil thing that God, in his superintending providence, ordained to happen. So what you have to, if you're going to say that the whole question of election is, is this, and that's on the sheet there on your back, and that's why I, I put it that way. When I, when I say it's man's will, ultimately, every Orthodox Christian believes that the will is involved in salvation. When I made a decision to follow Christ, my will was involved. When you made a decision, your will was involved. We're talking about the ultimate reason why your will chose Christ. That's what we're talking about. So all those passages that appeal to our will and invite us to do something, they're really appealing to our will. The whole question, though, is ultimately what causes that will to respond to God? And what the New Testament teaches systematically and in many places is that God is the one that awakens that will to be able to respond to him and to respond to him. I, I guess my problem is not so much with those who believe, but if you carry this to the logical conclusion, then to those who do not believe, then why did God not choose them? Which to me is a little bit of an issue. And then if you look at the people that are on both sides, I mean, you have some great men of faith on both sides of this. And if it was extremely clear then I don't think you would have that big debate. Um, one thing that I think Spurgeon talked about was that you have, you can't be contradictory because you're speaking about truth. Right. So you, you have these two truths that are being taught, so they must converge someplace. And maybe why we can't see it is you have a God who is outside of time. So we talk about foreknowledge, but really, what's before? God knows the beginning from the end. I, I, I understand what you're saying. Okay. Spurgeon, by the way, was a profound Calvinist. I mean, yes. a deeply committed Calvinist. But not a hyper one. Not a hyper Calvinist. He believed in election. Yes, he did. As I'm teaching it. A <laughs> <laughs> um, couple of things. We brought up a couple of points. That's why I'm emphasizing, when I'm talking about election, the ultimate decision. Because there is only, only one of those can be right. 
it, ultimately, it can only be human, the human decision, ultimately, that God is condescending to let people choose and he's just stepping back from that final, ultimate choice, or he is the determining choice. It's one or the other. Can't be both. That can't be both. And uh, there's got to be an ultimate cause to everything. And that's just logic, I think. From our perspective, it can't be both. See, that's where I'm saying... But, that's, but you know, that's what he's teaching. Well, yeah, but then later on, in the Revelation, you know, that he desires all people, for God to love the world, that all people um, you know, that didn't exist. But to me, this is an area, I think, uh, where I think we can have a little bit of grace. Well, of course you have to have grace, and people do disagree. Although, I've got to tell you, when you're talking about, like, great men are on both sides of this, if you look at the weight of church history in terms of who writes the verse-by-verse detailed commentaries and who writes the, the, the detailed systematic theologies and which side of that argument does that kind of careful theological work, I think you'll find that it leans very heavily on the Calvinist. <laughs> I'm serious about that. Um, Wesley was a very casual theologian. Billy Graham is a non-theologian. C.S. Lewis is a non-theologian. I mean, C.S. Lewis is a brilliant philosopher. Billy Graham is a brilliant preacher. But Billy Graham will tell you he's not a, he's not a theologian. C.S. Lewis will tell you he's not a theologian. He's a philosopher. So when you're getting into the biblical view of these things, you know, you can take those texts. You take um, 2 Peter chapter 3, for example, and uh, there's an easy understanding of that from a Calvinistic framework. But I have yet to find an Arminian who can explain Romans 9 from an Arminian framework that is satisfactory. It's just, there isn't. And there's just so many of those texts. I think, the, I think there is a legitimate way to know. And I think um, it's here for a reason. I don't think it would be so often talked about and so clear in Scripture if it wasn't meant to give us something. And for me, it gives me a lot, spiritually to know that God is sovereign in salvation. It gives, for one thing, it makes the whole work his, and all the gratitude goes to him. If you're an Arminian, if you believe that in some way, ultimately, human decision is involved, then you've got to, in some, at some point, credit yourself for being sharp enough, wise enough, good enough, or, sh or smart enough to choose to make the choice that other people didn't make. Ultimately, somewhere in there, it has to be there. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that Adam and Eve, did they have a choice? Yeah, they were free. Okay, so... That's the, uh, would be the issue. See, could you, by God's grace, he takes us back to the point where we can make a choice. Doesn't that make sense? Except that's not what scripture teaches. Where does it teach that? What's that? The scripture, that, that, that fallen men are brought to a point of level with Adam and Eve to make an equal choice that are truly a free choice. So it doesn't make that. Well, it just, it, then I guess we get into atonement, and is it limited, or is it, you know, that whole issue? Yeah, that's kind of a separate issue, I think, but, um, okay. Bill? Enough mouth, man. Uh, since you mentioned Second Peter 3.9. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. <clears throat> not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And uh, somebody mentioned, you know, John three sixteen. Also, you know, mm -hmm. the, the implication seems to be that God, God's desire, um, and I suppose we'd say then God's will is for all to come to repentance. And, and well, you've got an implication versus a clarity, and in, and in biblical interpretation, implications always have to give away to clarity. Well, first Peter, well, the, the second Peter three nine verse, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward who? 
you, and he's writing to whom? Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Well, who are the any and the all he's talking about? Who is the antecedent of those things? Well, if it's you, then he's talking about eternal security. That's a possibility there. Other people point out, and I think this is totally legitimate with regard to this, you have to talk about God's will in two senses. You have to. There's what's called his decorative will, which is what God decrees is going to happen as the sovereign of the universe. And there's his prescriptive or preceptive will. A precept is like a command. So God puts out a command like this. Um, you shall not commit murder. Have people committed murders? God's will. He's not in control. He's out of control, right? It's God. Isn't it God's will that people not commit murders? Does that mean God's out of control when people commit murders? Could he stop it? Somebody say, yeah, he could stop it. Is God powerful enough to stop it? In other words, there's a difference between what God decrees is going to happen and allows to happen versus what he says should happen. In other words, if in a morally perfect universe, this is what should happen. People should not commit adultery. That's God's will. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Do not lie. Do not cheat. Do not steal. Those are, that's God's will. That's his precept of will. It's a precept. It's what God is declaring to us is the, the true and right way. It's just like it says, Paul says in, in Acts chapter is it 17 where he says, God is now saying to everyone everywhere to repent and to believe the gospel. That's God's precept. That's the command. It's his will. That everyone now should repent and believe the gospel. Is it his sovereign will or is it talking about his decorative will? Well, I think my own take on this passage is that he's talk this is talking about his decorative will. That is God's will God's command that everyone repent and believe the gospel. That's what he wants to have happen. I mean, in the sense that that would be the right thing for us to do. But people don't do that. Just like they murder and they commit adultery, they use their will against his desire, his expressed morally right thing to do, to do their own thing. Well, God, we know, just like with Pharaoh, God allows people to be wicked and to do their wickedness for his own glorious purposes. He's got a plan for evil. He's using evil for his own sovereign purpose. But that doesn't mean it's not a violation of his moral will. It is. Okay? Does that make sense? Makes sense to Chris. Good. Hey, one comment there about the second passage. You can something I've heard uh, before that, that it's actually limited, as in uh, John 3.16, when it says world there, we normally think of everybody. But are you taking the, the uh, position that that's only referring to those people that are elect? Not John 3.16, but there are definitely places in the New Testament where there is no other possible interpretation but then to take something like where it says all men, and, and it has to only be the elect. It has to be. Because if you said it was all men, for, um, 1 Corinthians 15, where it says Christ justified all men. Well, you, are, are all men justified? Well, then who is it talking about? I mean, the way that phrase is used, all men, is not always every human being on the earth. It can't be. Or else your theology is going to be radically different than what Christianity is. I mean, take that phrase and just go through the whole Bible on it. I mean, you'll find a, a lot of different examples. I'm trying to think of some that I could lay on you real quick. But um, Titus 2.11. Um, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Does that mean it's brought salvation to all men? Huh? Is it? Have everyone heard it? 
But what does Romans say about all who seek him? None seek him. None seek him. That's the whole point. And, and, and to me, that's definitive. If nobody seeks for God, then, then that's true. You know? It, it, it does... Yes. Evan? Um, we are taping this, so that's why we would like you to speak in the microphone. We are, huh? Hey, I would have prepared more. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> I just wanted to add, when you mentioned that none seek for him, right. can you just clarify how that would also include not responding to him if he called? Not responding what? Not responding to him if he called us. In other words, if it was... Well, you hear not talk seeking for him means that we're not actively looking for him, but how does, does that necessarily um, mean that if he were to call... We, you know, we're not looking for him, but he's looking for us, and then we respond to that when he calls. Well, remember, when we t- were you here when we talked about effectual call versus the general call? Uh, I think so, but I don't, I, I, if you could go over that real quickly again. <laughs> there was a, it's sort of like the precept thing. There was a general call. Come unto me and be saved into the earth. Okay, so it's John 3.16. Whoever, whoever will believe will not perish but have everlasting life if you believe that's a general call but the effectual call is the call of God in the heart that's the Romans 8, 28 and 29 call you know if, and, if, and again that's, it's inescapable that it says whom he foreknew he predestined and then verse 30 whom he predestined these he called whom he called these he justified these he justified he glorified predestined called Justified, glorified. That is the golden chain. Remember we talked about the golden chain of salvation. This is about a month ago. It doesn't say anybody drops out of that. It doesn't say he predestined, he called, so a few dropped out and he only justified some, and then some of those dropped out and he only, he only glorified a few, and it keeps, people keep dropping out. Four new, predestined, called, justified, glorified. That's the chain. And you can't, where are you going to break that chain? If you're not going to break it, you're a Calvinist. If you're going to break it, you're an Arminian. I mean, that's how it works. It is. I mean, it, it, where are you going to break that chain? Where are you going to say that one of those groups he, he did this to, he's not going to do it for all of them in the next step? Because that, it's so clear what Paul is trying to get us to latch on to, that God's grace is the only thing that saves us, and that he carries it from beginning to end, and it is entirely God's work, and it glorifies him in his mercy, just as it glorifies him to harden some and damn them because his justice is glorified in that. But his mercy is glorified in salvation. And, and, and you've got to remember that nobody deserves salvation. So it, that God saves anybody is a wondrous, wondrous tribute to his grace and mercy. And far beyond our comprehension that he would be that gracious to us. So a lot of it has to do with the understanding of human sin and our degradation and what God is actually doing in salvation. Um, and again, you know, Richard, I go back to that golden chain again and say, where in that is that place where he, where some people would say that he brings you to this place where you can choose one way or the other and then kind of lets it go at, at your final will. You know, God chooses for you, Satan chooses against you, and you get the deciding choice, or that kind of thing. You know, you've got this equal, equilibrium state, you know. doesn't seem to be. Elena? I guess I'm, I'm thinking about Matthew 22, and at the end there it seems to be, um, 
where many are called but few are chosen. It's talking about this great banquet. And That's God. the general call. Yeah. Right. Few are the, chosen. Um, pre- There's so many of those call. And uh, what was the second one? Efficacious. <laughs> There's the call that works on the inside of your heart and changes you. Yeah. And there's the call that is general, that goes out to all people, that they need to repent and believe the gospel. Right. And that's talking about that efficacious call. Many are called, I mean, that one's talking about the general call, we're talking about calling, but it says, but many, many are called, but few are chosen. The choice mm-hmm. is that electing grace. Just like Jesus told the disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. you know? Well, I that thought I chose That seems to apply them. to prayer also. Sure. I mean, I don't feel like I'm personally accomplishing anything. I'm showing up at the banquet. You see what I'm saying? Right. Right. Scott? Yeah, I was just uh, wondering if there's an explanation. If we were created in God's image, why is it our nature to walk away from him? Because of the fall Without of man. Without the grace. Because of the fall of man. Because we're not as he made us. You know, Adam and Eve were as God made them. When they chose, they had a free choice. When they chose to fall, the race fell with them. So now our nature is corrupt and evil and against him, choosing against him. You grow up that way. You're born that way. So then our nature to walk away from him started with Adam and Eve. Absolutely. When he created them. Well, no, when they fell. Not when he created them. He created them good. Oh, it was after creation. They fell. Okay. They fell. Right. Back at the beginning of Romans, you read a, uh, I, don't, I don't think it was an article about a man who was a famous pastor, and then he decided not to believe anymore. Do you remember that? The beginning of Romans? Yeah, I, I kind of do, yeah. I have better memory than I do, though. <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered, like, how you were talking about people who are, like, on fire for God and everything, and then they kind of fall away. There's so many reasons people come into Christianity. And, and, and but is it possible for them to come back? Like this, I mean, of course, God will put things in their life to bring them back. See, I can't. Go. See, the key is the new birth again. If you have a new birth, you can't undo it. You are newly born in God. It's, it is possible for a person to receive a new birth, wig out for a time, and then get their head straightened up and come back. Um, what I would say, you know, is that God unleashes the hounds of heaven, though, to go after you. It's like when you commit church discipline, when somebody, a, a professing Christian, see a person professes Christ, we don't know. I can't read a person's soul. I don't know if a person's born again or not. You don't know if I am, really. You really don't. I mean, th- there's, there's, uh, <laughs> there's a question. Uh, I mean, there's, there's always going to be that question. So if somebody looks like they're doing our thing, they say our language, they might even cry. You know, Bill Clinton cries at church too and all that. And uh, you can do all of this. I'm not suggesting anything about his salvation. Maybe I am. But people find a lot of reasons to become religious or spiritual or involve themselves in Christianity. That, not ne- that doesn't necessarily mean anything about where their heart is related to God. Because it can look very genuine, but not be. And I'll tell you, when I've been in situations where people did wig out that seemed like they were genuine, and I look back, and I start 
reliving conversations I had with them and thinking about things they said, I started going, you know, there really was something screwy there. There was something actually missing there. And I'm, I, right when I say that, I can think of like five or six people that were important in my life that that happened to. And, and I just have to believe that generally, I mean, what I would say is they were not born again. They came to Christianity for some other reason, some psychological need or some personal thing, and they, they played the game, and they looked just like, just like any non-born-again religious person in another religion would do. You know, it's their religion, and they're committed to their religion, but in terms of the living hope, a relationship with Jesus Christ that is real and personal, they love God, they love his kingdom, they love his righteousness, they're going his direction, they want to be with him with anything in the world, that reality just is missing, and because they don't have the new birth. Even though they can look like they might, because they know our lingo and language, and even our emotions are sort of part of what they are. That's that tasting of the divine nature that... that was talking about in Hebrews 6, that, that idea. They can be a part of it so much, but then not, and not be real. So when they fall away and we got like that guy, yeah, and there's, you know what's amazing is people were saved by that guy, his preaching. But Paul even says in Philippians 1, there's people out there preaching the gospel from bad motives, but people are believing through them because the message is real. So he says that, that, makes, that he's rejoicing in that. That's really a, an amazing thing, too. Okay, well, we've got to have communion at some point, so go ahead, Patty. Okay, just real quick. Um, I've always thought of Christ dying on the cross for all. And so does this mean that his well, sacrifice on the cross was only for those who... Many, many, many strict Calvinists believe, uh, reformed people believe that Christ only died for the elect. I don't believe that personally. But, you know, whether you believe that or not, it doesn't matter. It only works for the elect. <laughs> I mean, whether you believe he actually died for the elect or he died for everyone and only the elect receive it, it doesn't change much. I don't see the logic in their system where that is a necessary conclusion of that theological system, that he only died for the elect. I don't see that, the need for that. I think Christ's death is sufficient for all, efficacious for those who believe. Okay. But listen, the, the other point I want to make about this, you can't want to believe and not be able to because you weren't elected. That is not going to happen. There is nobody in the world that wants to be saved, and they can't be because they weren't elect. You don't want to be saved without election, without divine grace. You hate God. That's what it says. Enemies of Christ, Romans 5, right? Helpless, ungodly enemies of God. That's what we are in our hearts without him apart from his grace. Enemies. So. And actually, when you talk to people about this stuff and you say, they say, well, I love God. And you say, you love a God that, that um, does this and this. And you start revealing the God of the Bible and by the end of the conversation, you'll say, no, I hate that God. That's right. You hate this one. The one you love is the God you've made up in your own mind. You hate the God that has revealed himself. You, reveal, you hate the holy God. You hate the judging God. You hate the God that, who's whose love will burn away every imperfection of your being and bring you into conformity with his righteousness. That's the God you hate, because you don't want that. It's like Richard and I were talking the other day, you know, C.S. Lewis, who's an Arminian? But I agree with this point totally. He says, hell is locked from the inside, and I believe that. Hell is locked from the inside. People want to be there. Now, they don't want to suffer there, but they don't want to be where God is. They don't care anything about him. When people die, they don't want to be with God. They want to be with their loved ones, or they want to have pleasure, they want to live an infinite joy, but they don't want to have God unless they're elect, unless they have the grace of God that's awakened them to the glory of who he is. Yes? Where's that? Where are you pointing? Oh, Amy. Okay. Now the long question. I'm sure I'm down a little bit. <laughs> my, my question would be, isn't then, in a, in a way, if God is choosing those who are saved, he is sending others to hell. And I'm wondering, is that contradictory to his love? Because as a mother, 
I prayed for my children before they were born, and if I knew any of my children were not going to be saved, I would rather have never had children. And I don't understand how... Well, you're not him. How, if he loves everybody, how could he let any go to hell? Because I, I would just rather not be born than go to hell. Yeah, but he would rather... This gets very complex. Don and I were talking about this the other day. God is morally obligated to reveal every aspect of his nature. He, he's morally obligated to make the universe as full and as rich and as good as it can be. Evil makes good better. So God has permitted evil into his universe. He didn't cause it. He didn't plan it. He didn't hope for it. He didn't, uh, uh, he didn't um, create it. But he allowed it, and he uses it in his design, his eternal purposes, to make good better. And all you have to do is think about a virtue. Forgiveness, love, mercy, compassion, all of those things mean so much more when they have to contest with, fight with, and be in an evil universe. What does patience mean if there's nothing to frustrate it. What does love mean if there's not great sacrifice that has to be made and obstacles to be overcome and evils to be overcome? It's, aren't the greatest virtues? What is courage without fear? And all of those things. You know what I'm saying? All the virtues in the universe are greater because evil exists for a time. Salvation is greater because there's damnation. The glory of God's love and salvation is greater because people are in hell. God is glorified in his infinite justice by sending people to an eternal hell. Because God, doesn't, God does love people, but that's not the highest good that there is. The highest good that there is is him and the expression of his glory and his nature. That is higher. It is more valuable than you and more valuable than I am. The highest good is not his motherly concern. But his love is infinitely abounding on those he has chosen to love. And that is an incredible thing. And we're not to probe or even think, I don't think seriously and get into this big thing of why he's not love so-and-so. That's not for us to know or to decide. What we should know and decide is that his love is available at a level that you cannot comprehend that would take you from the literal pit of hell where you deserve to be and exalt you to the highest heaven where he is and to be a, a brother of Christ and to live in eternal glory with him with pleasures forever at his hand in his presence freely, a, a totally gracious move on his part. That's where your heart should be focused on. But the reality is that, that the, the infinite joys of that are, are, are more precious and more valuable because God is also glorified in his justice, and his justice is real. It's not pretend, it's real. That really is a place you deserve to go. That's really a place I deserve to go. That's really a place where people are suffering. And you're not there. And he gets the glory of his grace is shown even more by that. So God's righteousness, again, is his fidelity to himself. And he is righteous in the way he treats people that are going to hell, and he's righteous in the way he saves people because both glorify him. We're talking about heavy stuff. It's the reality. So we'll talk later about the details of it if you want to. Call me this week. We're done. <coughs> But um, if you want to talk about specific texts, we can sit down later and talk about those too, because I'd like to do that. There are a few Armenian texts like Second Peter 3.9 and stuff like that. Okay, let's have a word of prayer, and then I want to do communion together. Father, we thank you so much for your blessing, the grace of eternal life. It is indeed something of a mystery. But I know you wouldn't put it in the book if it wasn't important for us to know and to rely on and to cherish and to believe in. And that the hope of the calling of the gospel is that you make it efficacious, that you 
hold us eternally in your hand. And as you yourself said, nothing can take us out of your hand. And we thank you for that. We are awed by your greatness and your infinite majesty and your dealings with men. And we're humbled by it. And Father, we just even now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which represents the sacrifice you made, joining yourself to humanity to bear our sin, to pay the penalty, we give you thanksgiving because it shows a love that wasn't needed in the universe, needed by us, but not by you, but it's something you freely gave. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.